0: following program is brought to you by your friends at podcast one lowe's knows you'll do spring right by saving on everything you need to get your garden growing we do it right too with incredible deals to help you save during our spring black friday sale like bonnie vegetable and herb plants four for ten dollars and for a clean looking landscape pick up five bags of scott's mulch for just ten dollars whatever's on your spring to-do list hurry in and save during our spring black friday sale Do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offers valid through 417, not valid on Alaska or Hawaii. Bonnie offer valid on 19 ounce pots. See store for details, US only.
1: Yeah, the running meme in in venture capital firms is that the deal decisions actually get made in the hallways, not in the conference room, right? Where people, individual partners, have to go office to office and campaign for whichever deal it is that they want to get done. And then there's sort of this fake meeting where there's a decision that's made but the decision was actually made you know through the course of several conversations ours it's all made out in the open it's all debated there's no sort of the ownership or sharp elbows that you might find elsewhere
2: Welcome to the Forbes interview. I'm your host Steve Bertoni. On this show, I'll do in-depth interviews with billionaires, entrepreneurs and influencers. Hey everyone, welcome to the show. Today we have a special venture capitalist edition. We have general partners from Spark Capital, Megan Quinn and Jeremy Phillips. Welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having Thank us. You.
2: So you guys are growth investors, and that's people in tech and VC kind of know the difference between early stage and growth, but you run a big billion dollar growth fund. How is that different than other VCs and how is it different than early stage for some of our, uh, our new listeners here?
1: Yeah, so we typically invest in companies um, at Series B and up, all the way, frankly, to pre-IPO. And what that means for people who aren't following the alphabet soup of funding rounds in venture capital is that we invest in companies where there's already a product in the market and there's product market fit. So that we don't take risk on whether or not a product is actually going to ship or whether or not customers or users are going to like it. Um, We need to actually see that that's already the case Um, and that there's some notion of a business model, if not already fully ramped, at least initially underway. Because when we invest, what we're really doing is pouring fuel on the fire with capital. Mm -hmm. And so we are enabling those companies to scale up from where they are um, but not starting at that very initial ideation stage.
2: Well, and how do you decide which companies get the fuel and which companies don't? I mean, there's a lot of opportunities out there, and like you said, you're picking companies that already have traction, already have a product in a market. Um, what is that decision making like versus you know you're someone taking a bet on a founder with a pitch deck and a dream?
1: Yeah, I think at, at all stages, venture capitalists tend to look at very similar things, right? So you're right. We, we look at the founders, um, obviously early stage investors look at the founders. We want to see someone who has complete conviction that the world needs to exist in a certain way, and they're going to go execute to make sure that their product or their service exists in that world. Um, we also spend a lot of time evaluating products. We tend to be product-driven investors at Spark. It's something that's fairly unique to us. And we want to see really imaginative, creative, data-driven products that bring new market experiences for various verticals. We then look at the market. Um, Obviously, you can have a beautiful product and an amazing entrepreneur, but if the market itself is very small, it just is not going to be a venture-backable company. Mm. So we do spend time doing market analysis and seeing how big, if we dream the dream, a specific company or product could get. And then, of course, frankly, at our stage, especially with the amount of capital that we're investing, we look at the deal. There are real deal dynamics uh, that factor into our decision making. So we we underwrite our investments to at least a three to five X. And we do want to have this dream, the dream scenario where it could even be a 10 X in the best, best case scenario. Mm -hmm. And that's not always going to be the case with the types of valuations that we're seeing. Jeremy, would you add anything to that?
3: I, I think that's a good summary. I think, you know, we're, we're, we're taking risk. We're absolutely taking risk. It's just a slightly different kind of risk to early stage venture risk. And we try and figure out, are we taking the risk that the company that we're backing is going to lose to a competitor? Are we taking the risk that we're paying too much price? You know, are we taking the risk that the market structure is going to evolve in an uncomfortable way? But we try and really figure out what the risk we're taking is. And, um, and that's what, you know we're underwriting to
2: and jerry megan said you 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 know spark is a very product focused company does that mean you get to kind of hang out and play with play with toys all day
3: (laughs) i don't i I mean this, this is a fun job um it's not playing with toys all day but um but it's certainly um spending time with people who are working on um on big problems um some of the toys are um you know, financial products and, and things that, um, that may seem uh, a little drier than, uh, than the latest gadget. Um, but it's all um, it's all a pleasure to um, spend time on, for sure.
1: I would add that we, we are looking for, frankly, even more than product market fit. We're really looking for product market love. And so in some cases, I can give an example of a company we invested in about a year ago called Pendo, which helps enterprise companies build better products um, for their customers. You know, we went out and talked to 25 different customers and the feedback we had was overwhelmingly positive that to the extent that people, customers of theirs asked if they could invest alongside us, they said that they would quit their jobs if the product didn't exist or if they weren't allowed to use it anymore. Like it doesn't need to be a product that we directly use in our day-to-day work, Mm -hmm. but we need to see that real passion from the end user.
2: And on the consumer side, where are you seeing uh, the love, you know, is there a certain product right now that on the consumer side you guys are seeing customers really getting drawn to or you're kind of getting excited about?
4: Well, a
3: good example is, um, you know, Max Levchin unveiled the new version of uh, the Affirm app last uh, last week uh, at a conference. And, you know, on the one hand, it's a, it's a product that lends money. So it's not, um, you know, the sexiest thing in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the other hand... Um, you know it does it in a in an innovative way in a way that's fair to consumers and consumers really do love it i mean this is a financial services company with an n p s in the eighties um you know which is sort of unheard of
2: meaning meaning what
3: meaning that people really love it, so that's in that promoter score okay yeah um and um you know that's a higher net promoter score than Amazon. I think Tesla is slightly higher, um, but you know banks typically have a very low number because this is people really appreciate the fact that this is a product that's beautifully designed that treats them
2: fairly. fintech is one of your one of your core um, your core focuses, correct Yes, and what are you seeing well, let's talk for a second with I know Jeremy you wrote a lot about you recently wrote in The New York Times about Bitcoin. I'd um, love to hear your opinion too, Megan. What is what is your thoughts on Bitcoin right now? I think it's at what, bordering around six thousand a coin. Um, what what are you seeing? What are you guessing?
3: I mean, I think you might be a day off. I think it was. I think today might be sixty four hundred, oh, but I haven't but, um, <laughs> because um, because uh, have the a CME announced a um, that the that the going to be trading um, a Bitcoin future probably by the end of the year. I mean, obviously, you know, we're not in the business of of forecasting the day-to-day price of um, of Bitcoin. Uh, We are an investor in Coinbase and and have some other uh, things in the space. Um, And we think that, um, you know, that this is a, a genuine developing opportunity, Um, and, you know, we don't look at it through uh, rose-coloured glasses. We understand that developing opportunities are also developing opportunities for um, unsavory deal practices and Mm -hmm. a whole bunch of other things. So we think, you know, people obviously need to tread carefully as we are. Um, But there's no doubt that this is creating... um, Real opportunities for financial innovation,
2: Megan. Kind of, in a, what kind of innovation in terms of you know, everyone talks about Bitcoin price, but it's also the underlying blockchain and what this could mean for the future of currencies and contracts, or just you know, if this works right, how will our lives be transformed and changed with if this blockchain um, technology kind of really explodes across the market?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the evolution right now for Bitcoin and, and frankly, other cryptocurrencies is going from being a speculative practice um, and a a speculative market to actually being a true store of value that can be applied elsewhere. I think on the blockchain question, that's actually a much broader market opportunity. That extends, frankly, from how information is shared, how governments run various processes around understanding their, you know, constituents to how money flows through the system. I think that the blockchain opportunities are expansive, but probably have been a bit overstated to date. Like I I think that there's been Quite a bit of enthusiasm and hyperbole and hype around what the future will be like with blockchain, with very few applications truly out there um, that take advantage of it in a way that is genuinely useful and not just blockchain for blockchain's sake. And I think that's an
4: evolution that we are excited to see happen. And we're taking a quick break. The Forbes interview podcast is brought to you by LifeLock. Is your personal information for sale on the dark web? Monitoring your credit can't show you, but Lifelock sees a wide range of threats to your identity. If something happens, US based specialists can work to fix it. go to lifelock.com, use promo code Forbes and save 10%.
2: You too have a great job that you always looking for amazing companies that are gonna you know shape the markets and get really big and you know really affect the way people live and the way people do business. What? How do you filter all these great ideas and all these founders? Like, I'd love to hear how this nonstop, you know, chase for these really interesting companies um, goes on, and kind of what your day to day is, and how do you separate, um, you know, something that's worth your time to something that might be crazy. I, I, w- I always want to get into kind of your heads and this kind of day in the life here at Spark.
1: Yes, I think we do things very differently on Sparks Growth Fund in terms of our decision-making process. Um, Jeremy and I talk about trying to build the most collaborative practice possible. Uh, And I think, frankly, it comes from the fact that Jeremy, who founded the fund a few years ago, has been in an operating role for the vast majority of his career, Mm -hmm. as have I up until just a couple of years ago at Google and Square. And so we have a history of working in teams and building products and building businesses. And I think have both genuinely liked that. And so when we've both individually crossed over to the investing side, we've looked for an opportunity to recreate that collaborative experience, but in an investment role. And so what does that mean in practicality? For example, if one of us sees a company or an entrepreneur that we think is interesting, we have the whole team meet on the second meeting. And by the whole team, I mean, you know, there's only actually seven of us in our little group, um, but we all get involved with every investment opportunity. We all do customer diligence. We all work on the diligence of the deal as it's underway and discuss it over several, several days um, internally as a crew to come together with a shared view. And and that is frankly very different. There's a lot of venture capital Mm. firms that talk about working as a group, but in reality, it it, it looks more like coming together Monday morning, pounding the table for a deal, and then everyone going their separate way. And we think that while this is a bit unusual in the way that we practice this collaborative collaborative venture practice, um, we think ultimately we're going to get to the best decision because everyone has been a part of the work along the way and is educated and has a point of view that they can articulate and share with the group.
2: Do you ever? What happens when the rooms kind of split? You know, three to four or, or in half, so to speak, of um, whether you should pursue a company or not. Is there a, a big debate? Is that a good sign? Is that a bad sign? How does that work out, Jeremy?
3: I mean, that, you know, our whole process is debate. You know, that's the um, that's the that's that's a that's a feature, not a bug. Um, you know we we spend our time um you know talking about companies and we eventually end up um convincing ourselves one way or the other um that this is something that we really have conviction or, or on or we don't uh there's no there's no voting or anything uh Megan also left out the other key uh, part of it which is slack um i'm not sure um how any of this would would happen without slack um but um but that's kind of like the integral to our operating system um
2: how do you guys use slack because i have trouble with slack personally because i have so much external stuff coming in and then for me that adds like a whole other layer but i'm sure you have both you have stuff coming in all day then you have internal slack like how does how do you guys use that without going crazy
3: i mean i think it's the, the the key thing is that it's the, the, the way we work together is sort of, you know, the whole team has this transparent look at everything we're doing. And so, when when people are talking about a deal, it's not two people having this conversation. A third person can pipe in. Well, I happened to see the competitor yesterday. I happen to have a different point of view. I happen to know someone, and it just it just saves a huge amount of time It's everyone can be part of the same uh, conversation and, and 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 deal with things in different channels. Um, and it's just enormously empowering for us.
1: Yeah, the running meme in, in venture capital firms is that the deal decisions actually get made in the hallways, not in the conference room, right, where people, individual partners have to go office to office and campaign for whichever deal it is that they want to get done. And then there's sort of this um, fake meeting where there's a decision that's made, but the the decision was actually made, you know, through the course of several conversations. Uh Ours, it's all made out in the open. It's all debated um, and and rationalized or not uh, over Slack. Um, And to to just put a finer point on it, it, it's so collaborative that you know, To date, we have not put names on term sheets. We don't say who's going to take the board role. We're really flexible. We work with entrepreneurs um, to determine who's the best person for them. But it's not around deal attribution. There's no sort of the ownership or sharp elbows that you might find elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And we think that makes us better investors as a group.
2: And by the way, for the record, I believe Spark is an investor in Slack, correct? We oh, yeah. are. See, there you go—a little free publicity for the <laughs> company. But, but, wait, but, but at the end of the day, like what? Ha- like you have many people, many voices, many opinions, and obviously these companies. While yes, there's traction. Very rarely is there like a you know it's People have different opinions, and it's 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 not binary because it's venture capital. What ha- like how do you get everyone? in the ultimately how do you decide when you're going to get into a deal and not how does that work over slack or over meetings and kind of getting everyone on board how what's that process
1: we typically talk about flipping over cards and it's actually a series of events and conversations versus a one time decision so We'll do a meeting, someone thinks it's interesting, everyone meets on the next meeting, there's either a yes, enthusiastic response in the room or like, hey, this probably isn't for us. But we just keep going from one question that needs to be answered to the next. It's not a binary yes, no, at that point in time, it's let's go one level deeper, one level deeper, let's figure out what the questions are that we need to answer, which is frankly harder harder than getting the answers to those questions, Mm -hmm. is determining what it is that you really need to understand about a business um, to believe that it can be a good investment opportunity. And we have that you know, on Slack or, or or we debate it live in our meetings. But at the end of the day, quite frankly, we will not make an investment if everyone isn't on board. Now, of course, there's going to be shades of enthusiasm. But mm-hmm. in our group, given the way that we work and the amount of trust that we put in each other, if someone felt very strongly that Spark Growth should not be an investor in a company, I can't imagine a world where we would proceed anyway.
2: And to get to that point of um, you know getting everyone together and debating a company, how many companies do you have to look at before you get to that point? I mean, it's kind of like you know those you know reality TV—they film you know a thousand hours to get that thirty-minute episode. How many companies are you looking at a week to kind of to find one that you're debating about these days?
3: Well, I mean, typically we're we're, we're looking at companies over a long period of time. It's not like someone coming on Shark Tank and it's a yes or a no, yes. um, you know, many of the companies that we invest in we've known for years um, and we track them through a pipeline and we get to know them and we get to see when they reach a level that that, that makes sense for us to be an investor and so forth. So it's really a constant process of tracking and, and filtering um, a pipeline. But you know, we typically have a lot of information about the companies that we're talking to and we get to know most of them over months and, and very often years and very often they're companies that, um, that one of us or someone in the venture fund has known for a long time or has known the entrepreneur from a prior company.
1: I'd add that we do, you know, in general, let's call it six to eight investments a year. Mm -hmm. Um, But we're doing, you know, six to eight investments every one or two, er, sorry, six to eight meetings every one or two days. Um, So it's a a very fine point uh, in terms of the number of companies that we end up actually investing in. And and I can say, for example, we recently did a little bit of um, backwards looking analysis and saw that. You know, we've looked at or met with 57 different vertically integrated direct-to-consumer brands. Mm-hmm. Like We think that there's something very interesting happening um, in the space of direct-to-consumer brands and, and the, the opportunities that entrepreneurs now have to um, reinvent um, the products that we use every day. Um, so whether it's uh, Glossier with skincare or it's Dollar Shape Club with razors mm-hmm. or, you know, shoots with Parachute Home, like everything is being reimagined. Um, but we have yet to make an investment. Um, we haven't found the right company, the right entrepreneur, the right deal for us. And we're being really patient. Now, if if, if I was a betting woman, I would say that, that we will likely make an investment in that space in the next year to 18 months. But it's going to take a lot of meetings hmm. uh, for us to get there.
2: What is kind of the current state of of, uh, of venture capital right now? I mean, there's been a huge amount of, you know, it's been a crazy year for almost every industry. Um, but, you know, with, with tech these days, a lot of controversies with CEOs, um, even right now with kind of this Russia stuff is unveiling with Facebook and Google and everybody. What is kind of, how is this year different than the other years? I feel like there's been a lot of talk about diversity, about gender equality, about, you know, bad behavior at the top of some of these companies. Does that change kind of the, the outlook right now, what you guys do?
1: Um, From a day-to-day basis, probably not. Um, because there will be um, you know, headline news around what's happening with Russia and all of the, the various incumbents. Um, there will be uh, news stories about bad behavior across any number of industries. Yeah. But on, on the day-to-day work that we do, meeting with entrepreneurs, evaluating them, whether we can trust them, their companies, their businesses, their products, it, it probably doesn't make a material difference. Where I do think that some of the events over the last call it six months have um, impacted our thinking is really being thoughtful about the teams and the companies where we have already invested. And, you know, spending time with our founders to make sure that they are thinking about bringing diversity um, to their boards and to their executive teams and lower ranks and helping them think through, you know, various options and ways of doing that. Um, And that's that's always been important to us. But Mm -hmm. certainly uh, I think for the entire industry, it's been a a really clarifying forcing function over the last six months to really prioritize this at the at the investor level.
2: And is there going to be, you think, another layer of diligence now before people make investments over some of these CEOs and executive teams? Like a little more you know, scrutiny than there was before?
1: You know, at the growth stage, we already spend a fair amount of time um, diligencing the entrepreneurs that we are are investing in, because, again, they typically have longer track records at this point. They're not we're not the first investors that are ever going to have worked with this this entrepreneur. Um, So we typically already spend a fair amount of time. I think it's more about coaching those entrepreneurs in um, ways that they can bring more more diverse thinking and backgrounds um, and people to their
4: organizations. Um, So that's what we're doing, or at least that's what I'm doing specifically on the boards where I serve. And we'll be right back after this quick break. Shopping online has its pluses, but it also comes with risks. With the holidays fast approaching, here are some tips to help keep your identity and financial information safe. Always use a secure internet connection rather than vulnerable hotspots. Shop on sites with secure payment methods like credit cards or gift cards. Create strong passwords. Be wary of deals that are too good to be true. And finally, avoid phony shopping apps. Here's the thing. Identity fraud costs Americans $16 billion in 2016. If you're only monitoring your credit, your identity can still be stolen in ways you may not detect. Thieves could sell your information on the dark web or get an online payday loan in your name. No one can prevent all identity theft or monitor all transactions at all businesses. Go to LifeLock.com or call 1-800-LIFELOCK. Use promo code Forbes, that's Forbes, for 10% off your LifeLock membership. Visit LifeLock.com and save 10% now.
2: Podcast One has crime and mystery with shows like Cold Case Files. Unsure of how his victim was killed, the doctor completes his autopsy with more questions than answers. The Serial Killer Podcast. Little boy, as it turned out, was the kidnapped Billy Gaffney. And crime and sports. He's pulled over in Dallas and found in possession of a crack pipe. Let's just say the lawsuit didn't go anywhere, he didn't win. (laughs) Exclusively on Podcast One and Apple Podcasts. Megan, you mentioned before that both you and Jeremy had operating roles. I know you were at Google then Square, and Jeremy spent time at uh, at News Corp for a while. Like, how? Would, what brought you both to investing, and also, kind of, what do you take um, from your older? Sorry, older. What do you take from your former roles and bring that to the investing side?
3: Well, I kind of, I, I'd always thought at some point that um, investing would be a natural thing to do. Um, the kind of roles that I was in at News Corp and, and previously an internet company that I started in Australia, they were kind of operating and investing roles, a lot of M&A and corporate development and so forth. And so I always thought that there was um, something very interesting about focusing on investing um, full-time at some point and um, hopefully, you know, t- learning something from the um, pain and scars of being involved in real businesses um, and I think that you know there is something um, that one gets from um, the experience of the struggle of being involved in real businesses um, it's not like I started my career as a McKinsey consultant and which, 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 which was a great opportunity and a great firm but you know a lot of what you're doing is strategy and you sort of put a strategy on the whiteboard and you sort of move on um, and the company's got to go and actually do all of these things. And so I think having the experience of just the grit required to actually get things done um, and the people, management involved and so forth, uh, I think that that's useful when you bring that um, as an investor and so you're realistic about what companies can achieve, how quickly they can grow, um, you know, how many people they can add. Um, it's you know it's the operational um, aspect. It's not just a strategic puzzle.
1: Yeah, I think I had the exact opposite uh, <laughs> entry path to venture capital than Jeremy. Um, I had never thought about being in VC. You know, I had gone straight from college, actually halfway through my senior year, into Google was there for seven and a half years and then straight into Square and always on the product management side. So always being a product builder, then eventually a a builder of product teams. Um, But at Square, Mary Meeker from Kleiner was on my board. Mm -hmm. And um, that was the first time, frankly, I'd ever seen a woman venture capitalist. And she was very involved. And we spent a lot of time together in her capacity as a board member and mine as the head of product. And it Really looked like an interesting job. I think if you're someone who's intellectually curious, the context switching of venture capital, where you go from one meeting that might be about you know a VR company to a. Sh- company that is doing something interesting in, uh, you know, transportation to a company that is building some sort of SaaS product. Like that context switching Mm -hmm. is really engaging and it's really exciting. Um, So for me, it was more about seeing someone who I could relate to in the role and then understanding that there was this opportunity to get really smart and learn a lot about different companies, products, entrepreneurs, business models, and so on.
2: And you just mentioned, you know, the, it's exhilarating to have, you know, work at different companies, in different fields all the time. But how do you kind of switch from making um, investments and in making, you know, and supporting a company that, yeah, one minute it's VR, the next one is, is vehicles? Is there, do you have to be an expert an expert, or are there certain things that certain qualities you look for in each company that lets you hopscotch from all these different
1: um, investments? You know I think uh you know ironically being a generalist is really an asset here because there's so much around company building that really is um, relevant across the board, no matter what the end product is. And so the human side of building an organization and handling um, sort of the management roles and tasks of being a founder, or even building a business, whether it's a SaaS business or a direct-to-consumer business, or whatever the case may be, you know, there, there's elements of that that are very similar. So we tend to take the experiences that we've had, you know, both in our own operational roles, but also with the companies, regardless of sector, and try to apply them to other companies Mm-hmm. As um, you know, a way of coaching, and it tends to be more useful than not. In fact, you know, several of our uh, what you would call SaaS companies, quote unquote, actually spend a lot of time with our consumer companies to learn how they reengage their users and how um, they turn up engagement on a day-to-day or week-to-week basis. And it turns out there's a lot of cross-pollination of ideas that's relevant for those types of groups. So. I think in my view, that being a generalist is really an asset for our work.
2: And in terms of after you make an investment, how do you support um, your founders and, and the teams?
1: It depends on the stage of the company, frankly. Yeah. So um, because we invest in companies that range from you know early revenue, Series B, all the way up to pre-IPO, um, the way that we engage with the company is really different. And in all cases, it tends to be founder-driven. We, we look to the founders to coach us, frankly, on where they think we could add the most value. And mm-hmm. we think that the best founders know how to manage their board in that way. But certainly with the earlier Series B companies, I'm recruiting and interviewing candidates. I'm uh, introducing and closing customers. I'm going in and helping build product processes, spending times with the teams on a week-to-week basis. And then some of our later ones, we serve as a gut check. We serve as someone to turn to on strategic decisions, to give a view um, that might be different or varied than than what they have internally, but are not necessarily there on a, di- oh, a week-to-week basis. Mm-hmm. So I think it really depends. Jeremy, would you have anything to add?
2: No, I think that's exactly right.
3: It's horses for courses, for sure. I'm sorry, it's what? Horses for courses. Is that not an American
1: expression? This is a Jeremyism, Steve. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I might, need, I might
2: need my handheld to that one.
3: <laughs> I don't know. I think it's – I don't know. It might be British. I don't know. What,
2: is it, what does it mean?
3: It means, you know – Difference, it means that you, as Megan said, you know, that, that it really depends upon the uh, situation, um, how we can be helpful and the CEO determines. But, you know, we I think that we don't confuse ourselves for a member of the management team. And management can decide, you know, how involved they want us to be in different aspects. Um, but we shouldn't confuse who's, who's uh, running the show and who's not.
2: Yeah, I've heard people say the best kind of VCs are the ones that are there when you need them and not there when you don't.
3: Exactly. That's what we try to do.
2: And do you guys, I mean, Spark is such a great network of CEOs and founders. Will you sometimes, you know, put other founders in touch with other CEOs or kind of try to get, you know, ideas from what oh, what worked for this company might work for you and kind of put everyone together? Is that like a big part of the, the network there?
1: Well, not to tout our book more, but actually we <laughs> have all of our CEOs in Slack together, um, so we've created accounts for various um, levels and roles at different organizations and put the portfolio together in that way, because they actually very much like engaging with each other and learning from each other, as, you, as you've as you hinted. Um, we also get them together on a regular basis in real time um, and set up conversations that we think could be meaningful to both parties, um, regardless, again, of you know necessarily a stage or, or vertical, because a lot of the company building pieces are just human el- and, and universal Reversal.
2: Let's be honest. I'm sure the CEO is just they're just sharing memes and, and gifts on Slack all day, like like everyone else. <laughs> I'm, I'm well, sure, I was recently
1: allowed in. I wasn't allowed in for a long time, and that I feared that was the case. But it, it's actually a lot of more questions around the you know best healthcare plans and uh, <laughs> whether or not anyone's going to this event or another.
2: Well, when you you've met a ton of founders and CEOs, could you both of you give me three qualities of a CEO that really stand out? There's certain flags you look for to be like, this is this person is going to really drive the company, have that kind of grit and have that inspiration um, that you hope?
1: Jeremy, you first.
3: Wow. <laughs> um, well, certainly, um, you know, someone who's driven, um, someone who's um, got a real sense of purpose, um, um... I mean, there are lots of uh, lots. I mean, integrity obviously goes without saying mm-hmm. um, leadership. Uh, I don't know. Megan, what else?
1: The primary thing I would add to that is, is some level of self-awareness, because I think the very best founders that we work with know what they're good at and know where they need help and don't have too big of an ego to actually get the help that they need, whether mm-hmm. it's bringing in other executives or leaning on their board for certain types of decisions. Self-awareness goes a long way in that role.
2: Um, any red flags? Uh,
1: there's, there, there, there are any number of red flags. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, certainly, if we, we have any uh, instinct or suspicion that the founder is not being truthful in some portion of the uh, fundraising process, or that at least when we're engaging with them, um, we will walk away. Because uh, the number one thing um, that we think is important when we invest in a company is that, you know, we can trust the founder with this capital and that the founder can trust us. It goes both ways. Um, so that that is a deal breaker uh, not, uh, for sure.
2: And Jeremy, you mentioned orange flags?
3: Well, I'm just saying that, there are, that you know, these things are very nuanced. There are some things that kind of cut both ways in a sense, which is, you know, to some extent, you have to have a certain degree of naivety to take on certain tasks, um, but if you're too naive, then it's crazy. So there's sort of this middle ground where you're naive enough to take on Walmart, um, but not so naive <laughs> enough that you fail. Yeah. Um, and so it's kind of, um, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a subtle thing.
2: And, you know, I, I get this question all the time as a tech reporter. I'm sure you get it a thousand times more. But what right now, it doesn't have to be a company, but what certain t- things in startups are getting your attention? What is the the cool, interesting field? Um, everyone just says, you know, machine learning and AI and stuff. But there's any sort of like markets or platforms that you're looking at right now that are making you excited or things that you think are about to be shaken up and disrupted?
1: Well... We tend to be founder-driven um, rather than thesis-driven at this point at the growth stage because there's a there's a finite universe of companies that we can invest in, and we think you know founders are the ones that are defining the markets and building the products and acquiring the customers, not us. So um, I will say, all that being said, that we have spent a bunch of time with a number of uh, direct-to-consumer, vertically integrated brands. We think there is an interesting trend there. We are looking for the right opportunity mm-hmm. for us to invest. Um, And we also really like this reimagining of all the products and services that people use at work. Um, And and Slack is just one example of that. We were also investors in Trello. Um, We're investors in another company that will will be announced tomorrow, candidly. Um, But we think that consumer expectations around um, the products that they use in the office have really heightened. And that... There's tremendous pressure on the incumbents to either acquire or work with and partner with a new breed of companies that provide a superior product experience for that consumer.
2: Just take a ride on New York subway. All the ads now are uh, direct cons- to consumer uh, ads. That's the new. That's real estate and subways. The new HUD uh, advertising area now. <laughs> it's crazy.
1: I'm glad to see the venture capital dollars put to.
2: <laughs> yes, they're always it's always on the move, and now they're fighting different different subway lines have different different rates. It's very it's actually fascinating. Um, what is? Give me one bold prediction, both of you, for the next um, three years. Oh wow. three years is like in fifteen minutes. Um, All right, then give me you, uh, can, you, <laughs> go, to, you can go to four and a half years.
3: Uh, a bold prediction in four and a half years. Um, you go first, Megan.
1: I think Spark Growth will be considered the number one growth uh, venture capital firm.
2: A prediction that doesn't involve you.
1: <laughs> now you're changing the name, the, 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 the story of the game. Uh, it doesn't involve us um, or any of our portfolio companies at that point. Um,
3: Politics will be less
2: exciting. I hope you're right.
1: I, I, that, that sounds good to me.
2: Well, tech, let's go out 10 years. What, if all of us woke up 10 years from now, what, what's going to shock us on the, on the tech side?
3: I don't know whether it'll shock us, but I do think that we still, even though we see the trends, I think we underestimate the extent to which a bunch of offline things will have turned into real luxuries, like paper books or retail experiences or things like that. I think we underestimate what happens when the tipping point reaches and it becomes incredibly expensive to support. 20% less people doing a particular thing. Hmm. So I think there's a whole lot of things that we think that going to the cinema will be a a totally exotic, luxurious, uh, unusual experience. Uh, Like all of those things, I think, uh, in that time period.
2: Or driving a car would be like uh, riding a horse these days.
3: Well, driving a car, I bet you in the U.S., will be exactly the same. But in Singapore, it'll be like... Uh, in the U.S., we can we can count on regulation to prevent technology achieving its natural um, its natural purpose. But in other countries, I agree with you. Yeah,
1: I think for me, I think what we, in ten years we would be surprised by um, by how we work. That, that I really do believe that we underestimate um, the power of fully distributed teams. Not because it's a better way to work today, but because there are products and services that are being built that enable teams to collaborate just as well over. Video phone, Slack, whichever you know product it is, uh, as you can in person, and and so I think that you know companies will no longer be limited by the restrictions of geography, um, and will be able to acquire the best employees, the best people, no matter where in the world they are, to to build really meaningful companies.
2: Where will people be working?
1: Where will people be working? Yeah, are
2: we can be in like uh, co-working spaces, or sitting around in our jammies on the couch doing consulting work. What do you think?
1: No, I think that's the point. Is I think people can be wherever they want to be and be uh, and be able to contribute to uh, to contribute to a company in a meaningful way, in a way that would be just as meaningful as being at you know HQ mm-hmm. in, in the way that we think of it today. Well, we so are- it, it goes back to you. Where do you want to Where do you want to live, Steve? You can write for Forbes from anywhere.
2: Oh, that's a that's a tough question. I'll, I'll just be <laughs> I'll just sit in my self driving car and just cruise the uh, cruise the uh, the neighborhood. It'd be it'd be fun. <laughs> Um, well, we're in Jersey City right now, so we might we oh, might, maybe... be be. Well,
1: that's it, where everyone wants to be. It only. is.
2: Buy real estate. It's, it's the, the new hot place. <laughs> well, that was a great show. I want to thank again Megan Quinn and Jeremy Phillips, General Partners at Spark Capital. Thanks for joining us. Thank you.
1: This is fun. Thanks for having us both on.
2: That's it for this episode of the Forbes interview. I'm Steve Bertone. Thanks for listening. If you want to get in touch with a question or comment, please reach us at interview at podcastone.com.
4: Hey, everybody, I'm Heather Dubrow.
0: And I'm Dr. Terry Dubrow.
4: Every Friday, check out my podcast, Heather Dubrow's World.
0: We also have the Dr. and Mrs. Guinea Pig Show every Tuesday.
4: So don't forget, iTunes and Podcast One. Tune in to Dr. and Mrs. Guinea Pig on Tuesdays and Heather Dubrow's World every Friday.
2: I'm Ed Donahue.